electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. We have an hour to go before the Fed's rate decision, and it's all about the two T's, transitory and tapering. We have full uh, Fed coverage, I should say, on every angle of this today. We're going to talk timing, yields, the wage debate. We'll even discuss Powell's future. Plus, we'll speak exclusively in just a few moments with the CEO of Pfizer about the company's big profits, its forecast for future sales, and the next wave of COVID. Our booster shots next. And a look at what to expect from two of the best-performing tech stocks this year, Yes, Facebook, but also PayPal. We will delve into all of it, but we do start with the markets this hour. Christina Partsinevelis has the numbers. Christina. Thank you, Kelly. So we've got continued Q2 earnings and the Federal Reserve, like you mentioned, in focus today. But markets remain mixed, as you can see across the board, with only the Nasdaq in the green. But they're still not hot, far from those earlier highs that we saw this week. So investor optimism right now is tempered a little bit. So the market's looking for clues about the timing of a possible taper of the Fed's $120 $120 billion per month asset purchase plan. Uh, and keep in mind, Powell, Jay Powell said June was when they started, quote, talking about talking about the possibility. So we wait for what the end of July holds. With that, U.S. Treasury yields on the rise as they move inversely to bond prices. You can see on your screen right here, the 10-year just uh, down 2.48% this, uh, but just hovering today at 1.25. So uh, it's the tech sector, though, that we're going to talk about right now because that's a relative outperformer, largely thanks to the chip stock. AMD, one of the biggest gainers, and that's after earnings, revenue, and outlook topped expectations. And we'll bring on your screen right now Boeing surging today after a surprise profit for the second quarter. And this is interesting. Not one of the 33 analysts covering the company actually predicted a profit for the aerospace company. And although McDonald's beat Wall Street's second quarter expectations, shares are down today, down 2.3% after the CEO warned of ongoing staff hurdles, did bring up COVID as well. But sales were up, Kelly, thanks to a new chicken sandwich and K-pop BTS meal promotion. Trying to keep a straight face. Christina, thank you very much, Christina Parts and Evelis. Let's turn to Pfizer, which just beat earnings expectations and raised its full year forecast. These results are pushing Pfizer shares higher. The stock is up 11% in July, and it's now on pace for its fifth straight month of, gain, month of gains. That's the longest winning streak since 2013. At the same time, Stat News is just reporting that the efficacy of Pfizer's COVID vaccine drops to 84% after six months. For a closer look at the vaccine and with a special guest and the latest on all of this news today, Let's bring in our Meg Terrell. Hi, Meg. Hey, Kelly. Well, let's start with the second quarter. Pfizer posting a beat and a raise for the quarter. A lot of that, of course, driven by its massive COVID-19 vaccine and revenue there. But it also grew the underlying business 10 percent operationally in the second quarter. The forecast going way up for the COVID-19 vaccine for 2021, now up to $33.5 billion, based on 2.1 billion doses contracted. And they're going to make $3 billion for the total year this year. So that could go even higher. Company also providing updates for the vaccine for kids 
expecting data by the end of September down to age five, showing that a third dose of the original vaccine boosts antibody levels against the Delta variant and also providing an update on its COVID antiviral drug, an oral pill it plans to potentially have data for by the end of the year. So let's bring in Pfizer CEO and chairman Albert Borla to talk about all of this and more. Albert, thanks for being with us. I want to start with some of the data you mentioned on the call about seeing the immunity wane after six months with the COVID vaccine. I think you mentioned that it not only wanes against disease in general, but also against severe disease. So once you start to get six to eight months out, the protection against hospitalization starts to go down into the 90%, even the 80% range. Is that what you're seeing? And is that the basis for your conversations with the U.S. government and others about a need, a need for a booster? Thank you. Uh, no, the basis is, is this data plus many other endpoints, because these are important decisions that... Uh, all the regulatory and health authorities of the world, they want to have a holistic view. Uh, there is uh, a waning of the efficacy, as you noticed. We just printed today uh, the data from our main study that was uh, from the original virus of the Delta variant. And it was the first two months was 97%, the second two months was 90% approximately, and, the, and uh, the four to six months was approximately uh, 84. Uh, we have seen also data from um, Israel, but there is a waning of immunity, uh, and that starts impacting what used to be 100% against hospitalization. Now, in the six months period, is uh, becoming uh, low 90s, uh, uh, mid to high 80s. But the good news is that uh, we are very, very confident that uh, a third dose, a booster, will uh, take up the immune response to levels that uh, will be enough to protect against the Delta variant. And uh, we are about, not about, in two weeks approximately, by mid of August, we will submit those data to the FDA and hopefully we will uh, get approval. And then once those data uh, are approved, the CDC will make their own decisions. I'm wondering about those interactions that you've had with, um, you know, U.S. health officials, because when Pfizer said it was planning to apply for emergency use authorization for the booster dose, you got that immediate statement from the FDA and CDC saying, hold on, we don't need a booster right now. Do you get the sense that U.S. health officials, the CDC, the FDA, others who are making these decisions are taking the data that you're giving them seriously and are going to act uh, in order to protect people before immunity against severe disease really wanes to a significant point? I have no doubt about it. They take the data very seriously. We had uh, a subsequent to this, uh, to our, let's say, prisoners and their statement, uh, a lot of meetings, and uh, we uh, we presented to them data. They saw it. They have other data, and they take it very seriously. Albert, it's Kelly here. Is this normal for the sort of efficacy to drop the way that you're describing after four to six months time? You know, how, could you compare that, for instance, with something like a flu vaccine? And what should we expect the booster shot to do? Does it extend it, you know, that efficacy really strongly for a couple months and then also taper off really strongly for another six months? What, what is your expectation? It is not uncommon. Uh, I don't think it's happening in flu. In flu, we have one shot because every year we have a different variant. But also, on the other hand, in the flu, uh, we have very, very low levels of efficacy. The efficacy in the flu, it is depending on the year, from 2030, maybe if it's a good year, 60%. Uh, but it's very common 
uh, that you will have a three-dose uh, schedules for initiation of immunity with vaccines. It's very, very common. It's happening with many uh, vaccines. Albert, we've seen the positive data you've shown, both with a third booster against Delta, but we know you're also making sure that you have a Delta-targeted vaccine candidate ready in case we need one. What would be the trigger for Pfizer deciding, okay, we've got to switch production over to the vaccine covering Delta or potentially another variant of concern that pops up in the future, heaven forbid? The data and our collaboration with healthcare authorities. What we do as a standard it is when we understand that a variant may present concerns, we don't take any risks. We start immediately working on developing a new specific vaccine for this variant. We did that for the beta variant. This is the South African one. Actually, the studies are about to be completed, and we will submit data to the FDA for the new vaccine, which will be a South African-specific vaccine. We don't need it. We, we understood during the data that the third dose of the same vaccine will protect very well against the South African variant. And again, during the, core, the studies, we realized that in South Africa, with the two doses of this vaccine in the first months, we had 100% effect. We do the same now with Delta. We are preparing, and we are already one-third into this way, of a specific Delta and Delta Plus variant vaccine. It's very likely that we will not need it. But uh, we will come, we will develop the vaccine, and we will put it on ourselves. But it is so important. There are so many things at stake right now with the public health, but we cannot take chances. So we just do it. And if something we missed and we realized that uh, biology was complicated and uh, we needed one, we don't have to wait three months to get it. Albert, one more question for me on kind of the COVID trends that we're seeing generally. A lot on Wall Street are focused on the UK and watching this kind of curve uh, in what's happening with the case count where it seems like it's coming off the boil a little bit. Can you explain if you have any sense of why that's happening, what's contributing to this turnaround, what it might tell us about the way that Delta can be expected to continue to trend here in the US? I do not know. I do not know. I, what I think I can make a helpful comment is that we, we see in the UK different uh, results against data from our vaccine than in Israel. And um, the difference is also that there is different time interval. So if you see the same uh, results at the same period of time, they are impressively aligned. So the data are pointing to the same direction. In UK, because they spread the second doses, uh, they didn't do the second dose, let's say, 21 days after the first. They did after months. So they have the majority of their people have the second doses in the one to three months period. This is why they see, let's say, less reduction. Israel was very successful in implementing uh, their strategy, and they, get, they did it with uh, 21 days. So the majority of their people are January, February. So they are already six and seven months from, from them. And uh, this makes the difference in the two results. Hmm. Well, that's interesting, Albert. Um, you know, you gave a big outline of what you're most excited about in your pipeline on your conference call today. And one of the things you mentioned was your COVID antiviral drug that you're working on. This would be an oral pill, and you're combining it, I believe, with another antiviral uh, in the testing uh, to try to prevent severe disease for people just diagnosed with COVID. And you expect results in the fourth quarter. How optimistic are you that this pill will really work against COVID and provide us another important tool to work alongside the vaccine? You know, science is uh, unpredictable many times. Uh, 
the elements are there. Uh, the antiviral activity in vitro or preclinical in animals is very strong. And on the other hand, the concentration of this new medicine in human tissues when we did uh, preclinical trials also is very strong. So we know that uh, the drug will be to the tissues of interest and we know that it kills uh, the, the virus. But we need to prove that with a phase uh, three study that is uh, happening right now. Again, just in case, I approved, and I said that today in the earnings call, uh, $1 billion investment a few days back at risk, uh, which means that uh, we are going full speed with all trials in parallel for this antiviral. We will run four, I think, uh, studies approximately. And we are manufacturing at risk. Uh, we made commitments. Uh, that we will pay all the suppliers, so they are providing now uh, raw materials, we are building the equipment, and we will manufacture it. Hopefully, uh, it will be successful for the world. Uh, the one billion, it's, uh, it's not the big consideration, but uh, having an effective tool, oral, that can be used home, is very important from public health considerations. Mm -hmm. Albert, I also want to ask you just one last question about the Delta variant, not on all of your vaccine plans and your drug development plans, but on the, the business of Pfizer. Is the spread of Delta changing anything Pfizer's doing in terms of decision making, bringing employees back into the office altogether, for example? Is it changing any, any of your strategy? Not so far, but always our strategies are flexible in, and they are based on the health conditions of the neighborhoods of the communities where we operate. So it's going to be very different, for example, uh, something in France than in Italy. And that will be different based on what is the situation of controlling the disease there. The same could happen in our offices in the West or East Coast or in the mid, uh, Midwest. So uh, we constantly monitor the situation. And if there is a need to take extra uh, measures, we will. All right. Very good. Uh, Pfizer CEO Albert Berla joining our Meg Terrell. And Meg, we thank you for all your work on this. As always, Pfizer shares, by the way, moving towards session highs uh, up almost 4% at the moment. We'll continue to watch it. Coming up, we are also less than an hour away from the Fed's latest rate decision. And we've got a very special Fed edition of Rapid Fire on tap. We're going to talk inflation, yields, wages, rates. We're going to ask our panelists if they think Jay Powell's je in jeopardy of losing his job. But first, we're going to speak with the CEO of Stiefel and get his views on the market, on crypto, and, like Meg was just asking, if Delta poses a back-to-work threat. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. 
Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're hearing progress on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. A lot of movement in the past couple of hours. Eamon Javers is on Washington with a recap for us. What's going on, Eamon? Well, progress means there's a deal actually up on Capitol Hill. That's what Senator Rob Portman said uh, just a short time ago to reporters in a Capitol hallway saying that negotiators have reached an agreement on all of the major issues uh, that they were hashing out, including one sticking point on transportation. Uh, And the question there was how much spending was going to go to rural areas versus urban areas. Portman saying uh, that they were able to work that out and Democrats accepted the Republican proposal there. Uh, What we don't know is anything about what's in this bill. Uh, as they're constituting it right now. We know that the lawmakers are going to be getting briefed throughout the course of the afternoon. This is a massive proposed spending package, and Portman says uh, that this is going to be really good for the economy. Here's how he explained it. This is going to add to the supply side of the economy, not the demand side. Increase jobs, provide funding over time, 5, 10, 15 years, for long-term capital assets. This is counterinflationary, and it helps make the economy more efficient, therefore more productive, therefore will actually result in more revenue coming in to the federal coffers. So, Kelly, they say they can begin the process of voting, and and it's a long process here this evening. They're going to need 10 Republican votes in order to pass this thing. Not clear that they have those 10 votes in the bag just yet. So this is not a done deal, but it's maybe the beginning of a potentially done deal. (laughs) Uh, In Washington speak, Eamon, thank you very, very much. Eamon Jabbers for us. Let's move on to shares of Stiefel surging today after reporting another record quarter with $1.2 billion in net revenue. They also upped full year guidance on strong wealth management trends. And joining me now with more on these results and so much more is Ron Krzyzewski. He is Stiefel's chairman and CEO. Ron, it's great to have you back. If you don't mind, can I just quickly ask if there's anything you'd oppose in the infrastructure deal that's coming together? I, I, I would guess the major stumbling point, um, you know, because I don't think anybody's against infrastructure, would simply be the cost. In this case, uh, it's investment. So I, I'm encouraged to read about this. Uh, you know, it's roads, uh, broadband, uh, bridges. Uh, this is infrastructure that we need to compete. So uh, I, I encourage them to get it done. All right. Let me ask you then, uh, sort of with that out of the way, about some of the other macro trends that we have going on here. So infrastructure undoubtedly would be, I'm sure, from the market's point of view, a macro positive. The Fed decision, which looks like any kind of tightening is going to be delayed because of what's going on with Delta. You think that's about right, that those kind of two major things are currently tailwinds for markets in the economy? I do. I mean, I I don't expect the Fed to say, um, you know, to say anything or even signal any tightening. I'm not saying that's the right thing. I'm just saying that's what I expect them to do. Uh, there is, in my opinion, uh, the the inflation and all this transitory talk about inflation. It's not what I see. We, we've been worried about inflation for a long time, but today uh, jobs and, and small businesses trying to compete with the unemployment. These are, there's some real, uh, what I think are all more permanent uh, cost increase that's going to come through prices. So at some point, the Fed is gonna, going to act on that. And when they do, it's going to be a difficult reckoning for the markets. Let's take Stiefel as an example here. So if, you know, if in some ways, and I'm just guessing, but, you know, tell me if I'm right or wrong on this, if your 
employees are becoming more expensive, if they have more bargaining power, you know, if there's labor shortage, whatever you call that, how does the company grapple with that? Does that mean that because you have record revenues, people just get what they're asking, you have to take some profit margin pressure, or you can pass it along, or you trim the workforce or do, you know, other means? What does that look like in practice for you? Well, that's steep. We're, look, we're a human capital business, and we're much more tied to economic activity, uh, and uh, we're a variable comp uh, firm. So our, our compensation moves generally up and down with the activity. I think it's more for businesses that have fixed costs, restaurants, pizza places, uh, you know, small businesses that are competing to have uh, the average workforce that they're they're paying uh, significantly more than they did a year ago, and uh, that that those costs uh, will be reflected in prices. Yeah, I think what's going on at Walmart is really interesting because you know you you see these headlines about paying for college tuition, and you go like that's an incredible perk, an incredible incentive that they can offer, an undeniable positive for a company. You and I remember that 10 or 15 years ago was constantly hammered for its poor treatment of workers. Huge turnaround, right? But they can offer that, and as we know, the mom and pop business in town or whatever, probably can't. So is that kind of the widening divide you're talking about, the people who are sort of left behind in this? Well, I mean, left behind in, in, in that it's small businesses, and you're right. Uh, Walmart, McDonald's, Starbucks, I think, have the scale to be able to, uh, to deal with increased labor costs. The average uh, small business is going to struggle with this a lot more, and it's an issue uh, for small businesses. I, I just ask anyone. I, I have a lot of friends that own restaurants and small businesses that have significant complaints about just even getting people to come to work, let alone what they have to pay them. So let me end with a parting thought, if you will, on the economy and inflation. You know, do you have any warnings about what's going on here, or do you think that the trends overall look pretty good, albeit you know, with the new uncertainty around what's going to go on with this Delta variant? Well, I think, I think the market is highly valued. You look at trailing 10-year operating earnings, and, and we're at almost 34 times. And I think that's occurred twice, uh, 1928 being one of them and 1998 being another. And so there's a lot of, a lot of maybe good news in this market. I, I think a lot of the market takes the rebound from COVID as sustainable and it's making the market vulnerable. The market would, uh, you know, would look not favorably on the Fed recognizing that they can't pump 120 billion a month into this economy indefinitely. There will be a tightening. I do think inflation is a higher risk uh, than, uh, as I said, yeah. I lived in the 70s and they said, uh, Inflation was transitory. It was transitory for like about nine years. Still, so uh, uh, let's, that's a risk to the market. Yeah, but it's interesting to hear somebody who's who's in the wealth management business and all that saying there's risks to the market. You're, you're, aren't you talking against your own book here? Shouldn't you be telling people, you know, hey, it's, it's a fine time to, to have exposure and get in? Well, yeah, I might be talking my own book, but my real book is is giving good advice to our clients. And uh, that, that doesn't mean uh, just, uh, you know, 
dam the torpedoes full speed ahead. Yeah. I think you need to have caution here. Uh, that's what we get paid to do is provide good advice. Ron Jashevsky, thanks for joining me today. Appreciate it. Especially head of the Fed decision, top of the hour. He is the CEO of Stiefel. Coming up, a closer look at some of the key Fed terms investors will be listening for, like transitory, tapering, and delta. Which ones are most important? We'll discuss. Plus, PayPal is reporting earnings tonight. And we'll speak with one of the most bullish analysts on the street about what she's expecting from the seemingly unstoppable fintech giant. We're back in a moment. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. It's Fed Day, and we're just minutes away from the rate decision, followed by Chair Jay Powell's news conference. So here today for a special Fed edition of Rapid Fire, let's bring in our panelists. Michael Schubacher, he is head of macro strategy at Wells Fargo. Annetta Markowska is chief financial economist over at Jefferies. And Stephen Whiting is chief investment strategist at City Global Wealth. Welcome to everybody. Let's get right through this. And we're going to begin with a taper talk. As everybody tries to predict when the Fed might back off asset purchases and even start talking about it, according to results from the CNBC Fed survey, most people think a taper announcement is coming towards the end of this year, around November, with purchases reduced at the beginning of 2022 and the first actual hike coming in late 2022. Michael, is that your own timeline? Yeah, it's pretty fair, Kelly. I think it's interesting to consider some of the risks around that scenario, too. And from our perspective, we think the risk is maybe the Fed tapers a little bit sooner, but pretty unlikely. So at this point, we're more or less on board with that scenario. I'd say the first hike, we differ a little bit. We'd push it back to call it mid-23, not late-22, but by and large, not terribly different from that view. Interesting. So your risk, you see a little bit more towards the tightening side of Netta, whereas lately people have wondered if Delta will actually put the risks to them delaying you know, a little bit. Tell me what your own uh, forecast is here, and what are you going to be listening for next hour? Yeah, I agree. November is sort of my my best guess as far as the announcement of the tapering process. I think they started in December. It sort of doesn't make sense to say in November, hey, we've met the, you know, the test, but now we're going to wait another two months. So I think they, they start in December. Um, and I um, I agree that I, I would say liftoff is more likely in 2023. I think I think they want to separate the two. I mean, they've worked so hard uh, after 2013 to disconnect tapering from liftoff to make sure the markets don't extrapolate from one to another. So I think um, they'll just take a little bit of a pause to assess. Steve Whiting, what are the risks going into this meeting and, and what's your own timeline look like? Well, look, I think the timeline is a placeholder. We've had probably 7% GDP growth in the first half of the year, 540,000 jobs per month, but half of those jobs are in the hospitality and leisure sector. If the Fed could have announced a at least a time frame for tapering earlier. This Delta variant risk in the United States, the bond market has understood it. I don't think that the public entirely understands uh, that it's not just over there in India or the UK. And that particular risk has got to keep the Fed just waiting a bit longer. Mm. So that's really the issue here. It could be quite material for fully reopening the economy and the time frame for that. So when we know how long it lasts, lasted three months in India, then we can go back and feel and firm up exactly when the Federal Reserve can do its magic. 
Okay, fair enough. So then related to that, let me ask each of you where you think the 10-year is going. Steve, you say that the 10-year kind of has understood this, so it, I would presume you think it's going to stay at a pretty low level. I think that one and a half to two should be the range when we okay. can see the signs of getting through this. So, so that really is it. We think that the vaccinated population will have uh, less an effect, even if there are breakthrough cases. The economy has excess demand. It's not poised for another collapse. Uh, but just setting things back and tightening later into an economic recovery does not get you, again, as far up on rates as we might have thought before. Yeah, so one and a half to two percent use how you see things. Annetta, do you think one and a quarter makes sense down here? No, I mean, I think the market right now is discounting probably as dovish of a Fed scenario as we can envision. Uh, so I, I would argue that maybe go out on the limb and say that yields have probably we've seen the low in yields. I've been at two percent for the end of the year. I'm still there. I, I acknowledge that Delta has a risk. I think even if we do see a, a sort of a mini wave of infections this fall um, by November, December, I think that should be behind us. Um, and, you know, we'll sort of sort out the, the booster shots and the vaccination in children, and that'll bring us that much closer to, to herd immunity, and, and, and markets will be very much focused on 2022. Uh, so I think by the end of the year, uh, we'll sort of sort out all the Delta-related um, issues yeah. for the market. So Annette's at 2%. Steve Whiting's at 1.5% to 2%. Uh, Michael Schumacher, you're the only one left who might think that uh, rates should be down here, or dare I suggest even lower. No, that's not me. Sorry, Kelly. I have to disappoint in that one. But No disappointment. I think everyone's I know, scratching their heads going, no one in the world <laughs> thinks this makes, I mean, maybe a few outliers here and there, but that's why it's interesting to constantly speak to market participants who say this makes no economic sense and yet it persists. But Michael, what were you going to say? No, it's funny. You look at real yields, right, which I would regard as the expected economic return on holding a treasury. And for the 10-year, it's minus 110, minus 115. Seems pretty silly. But from our perspective, it's going to take a while for yields to go up. So we've been floating this hockey stick metaphor for a bit. And the idea there is that a lot of uncertainty in the near term. So call it the next two to three months with respect to inflation, the jobs picture, Powell's own future. But when you get toward the last few months of the year, it should be a lot more clarity out in the markets and the economy. So we think the yields don't do a heck of a lot for a few months, go up substantially toward the end of the year. And I'll split the difference. We'll call it a 175, 10-year in. <laughs> All right. Let's talk a little bit about some of the stickier parts of the inflation story. And it largely comes down to wages. Here's what Ken Langone said on Squawk Box, uh, his concerns about it this morning. What I'm saying is not transitory. When you give somebody a raise, yeah, commodity prices go up and down. The price yeah. of milk, raw milk, goes up and down. But when you pay a truck driver a raise, you don't go back yeah, to him and sticky. say, oh, by the way, we gave you 17 or $22 an hour. We're going back now to the old rate. We don't do that. And a round number, about 65% of all corporate costs is labor. So when you're paying, you're not going to take that money back. Steve, the only thing I wonder is it, for companies, for businesses, especially smaller ones who can't fully absorb the higher cost, does that mean that they move? Look at the huge you know, jump in freelance and gig style work. You know, At some point, does the business model change? Because there's only so much of the pie to go around. So yes, if the individual they person may not costs have more, may not be able to expand in every part of uh, right. in every industry to meet every demand. Yeah, you know, that's certainly the case. But the absolute level of wage growth and price growth are pretty disconnected, right? And again, in certain industries and services, you'll see a much stronger correlation. But we raise output per hour worked. We've used technology uh, to make that the case. It can come out of profits. 
Uh, but when we can expand and we can expand wages, we can recycle that in the economy. It can mean somewhat more rapid growth. So, look, I think the, the main point here is that there are components of this inflation outlook, 5% inflation for the last 12 months. A big piece of that is disruptions to the economy, rapid changes that we can't adapt to. But there is another part of this. The next 10-year inflation rate we think will be higher than the last 10 years. All right, Neta, I'll give you final word on this. I think that pressures are going to be much more stubborn than the Fed would like to believe. Uh, you know, I think seasonally demand goes up in the second half of the year. And when supply is absolutely constrained, both in terms of productive and shipping capacity, that means the product shortages will persist. And I think in the labor market, you know, we're, I think the labor market is tighter than the unemployment rate would suggest. It's sort of a spot concept when you look at the pipeline of future hiring um, as we all know, there's more job openings than than unemployed, and I think and I think companies know it, and I think uh, workers know it, and that's why you're see- seeing these these wage pressures. Yeah, which again goes back to the disconnect with rates and everything else that's been going on. So uh, I think it sounds like you all are largely sort of agreeing with Ken Lingon, at least in the sense that what we're seeing is a reset in the labor market might not be part of the transitory. All right, so finally, let's add this all up. We're going to hear from the Fed chair at the top of the hour, actually about two thirty, of course, with the news conference. But what about his job itself? We spoke with last week with J.P. Morgan chief economist Mike Ferroli, who published a note saying he thinks Powell's position could be in jeopardy. Listen. I think it's very much up in the air. I, I personally, I think he's, as I said, I think he's done a great job. Uh, but I don't think it's a, he's a lock for getting a second term. And I, it's not because of monetary policy. It's because of, I think, because of regulatory policy. Michael Schumacher, your thoughts? Because this would create a whole other sort of category of uncertainty around the Fed's outlook for the next couple of years. It sure would. The Fed's got this new model, this new reaction function, and having a new chair would just compound that. We do think Powell's still the favorite to keep the job, but I would say it's not so much the regulatory picture that clouds his chances, it's really the politics. And if you think about some of the candidates that have been floated, they seem a lot more appealing in some respects than Jay Powell have been appointed by Donald Trump, but still, when you look at the record, it's been all right, and he's been very dovish. And after all, what president doesn't want to both? Probably Joe Biden does. <laughs> and Netta, although Farley's point was that it's kind of a, a going to be politics, not so much policy, like like Michael Schumacher was saying, that are the issues here. I, I, I agree that on regulatory issues, you know, progressives don't love Powell. I think they can address those concerns uh, with Quarles' departure and, and replacing him with a much more progressive figure. Um, I think it's very dangerous at this juncture of, of the cycle to replace Powell, who's, you know, on the economy, has a you know, very, very good record. Obviously, the Fed is very divided. They need strong leadership. Um, and, and whoever the new person might be, it's going to take them a while to, to, to sort of build that respect and leadership and the ability to build a consensus and to steer the committee mm-hmm. in the right direction and I think it, it, it's just sort of an unnecessary risk at this stage of the cycle. We got to go, Steve Whiting. I'll give you a quick last word. Well, look, it has been a tradition to uh, have the Fed chair offer uh, the new president to put their own chair in that role. So that's got to be considered a potential risk. Yeah. Now, again, the Federal Reserve is a big committee that has a lot of power to act apolitically. Powell has done so yelling before. All right, gentlemen, lady, thank you all. Michael Schumacher, Annetta Murkowska, Stephen Whiting. That does it for this edition of Rapid Fire with 20 minutes to go until the decision itself. Coming up, PayPal reporting after the bell today. We'll get some key numbers to watch and what the new fees mean for users with the top analysts who will dig into the changing landscape for fintech. Stay with us.
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. We're seeing a drift lower as we close in on the Fed's latest decision due at the top of the hour. The Dow is now headed towards session lows, about 130-point decline, just about four-tenths of 1%, so nothing major. But you can see a pretty clear move to the downside playing out here. Look at the S&P 500. Confirms this. It also just turned negative. It had been holding on to some gains until the last hour or so. It's down about six and a half points right now. Let's get over to Tyler Matheson for a quick news update in the meantime. Ty? Kelly, thank you very much. And here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Workers at Activision Blizzard are walking out today, demanding better working conditions for women and other marginalized group at the video, groups at the video game company. Last week, Activision was sued by the state of California over allegations of sexual harassment and discrimination. The company has fired, hired a law firm to review its policies and procedures. Starting next Monday, fully vaccinated Americans will be able to travel to England without quarantining. The rest of Britain is expected to drop its quarantine rules shortly. And Jared Kushner is reportedly looking at leaving politics and starting an investment firm. Reuters says Donald Trump's son-in-law will base his firm in Miami, but will also have an office in Israel that will seek deals across the Middle East, India and North Africa. The maker of the rifle used in the Sandy Hook Elementary School shootings is offering nearly $33 million to settle a lawsuit brought by families of some of the victims. Lawyers for the families say they're considering the offer. And McCormick will recall some of its seasonings due to possible salmonella contamination. The recall covers two spice blends that were shipped to 32 states in Canada between June 20th and 21st. On the news tonight, where has all the seafood gone? A look at why it's gotten so scarce and how prices on what's left have gone through the roof. That's tonight at 7 Eastern Time. Kelly, I'll see you in about 15 minutes. Sounds good, Tyler. Thank you, Tyler Matheson. Payment stocks are mostly in the red today. Visa lower on a lack of guidance due to the ongoing pandemic. We'll discuss that, PayPal's earnings, and the future of fintech right after this quick, quick break. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to The Exchange. Visa delivered strong earnings yesterday, but shares are slipping on a lack of full-year guidance down 1.5% or so. And meanwhile, PayPal is also losing some steam ahead of its results tonight. Let's bring in Lisa Ellis. She's a partner and senior equity analyst at Moffitt Nathanson. Lisa, it's great to have you. I mean, regardless of what, you know, the specific trends are and expectations and this and that, PayPal it, it has completely dominated the fintech space. Um, I guess my main question to you is, as it's starting to change um, some rules and fees and disclosures with Venmo and, and all the rest of it. Um, are there risks that they're going to start alienating users or creating any openings for, you know, rivals, that sort of thing? What are you most focused on here? Yeah, you're right. I mean, in the, the dominance is hard to overstate uh, out of about a trillion in online retail and travel and entertainment spending a third of that flows through PayPal's checkout button now, um, up up from about 20% three or four years ago. It's really extraordinary how dominant they are in the US and as a result are feeling confident in doing things like raising prices on some of their specialized services. We do worry, one, we just worry about a level of saturation, of course, when you're over a third of checkout, um, but also Apple Pay and Google Pay um, in their own environments, so within the Apple, you know, the iOS and on the iPhone, as well as Safari or Google within their environment, 
you know, do have a pretty high share now of check, you know, of acceptance, at least mm -hmm. availability of Apple Pay. Um, and we, we watch that, uh, whether or not, you know, people start sort of substituting or moving away uh, from PayPal over to um, alternative checkout buttons. We haven't seen it affect PayPal yet, but it's certainly the thing we keep a very close eye on. Sure. It, you know, it's amazing to me that the fees are as high as they are. You know, I think if I read correctly, PayPal was going to charge now three and a half percent to some businesses, which seems exorbitant. I mean, I don't understand in a world where we have a proliferation of payment uh, processors, why these fees aren't going the opposite way. I mean, why, why are businesses paying anything more than a couple tenths of a percent? Yeah, that fee, I mean, that's like the headline number that really only applies to about 10 or 15 percent of their merchants, which are very small merchants. And the, the main thing those merchants are paying for um, is a payment guarantee. The key thing PayPal does is that if they if they authorize a payment through the PayPal checkout button, they guarantee payment to that merchant. Uh, and so if you know if there's a chargeback later or some fraud issue or something like that, the merchant is not liable from that for that. That is an essential service uh, for small businesses who are very subject to concerns because online fraud in payments is about five times higher than it is in store. Um, it also drives higher uh, checkout conversion at small merchants because many consumers are very wary of entering their credit card or, yes. or debit card credentials directly into a small merchant's website. So honestly, PayPal has demonstrated that between the merchant guarantee and then the conversion rates that they get, um, that it is well worth it for that small merchant to pay that three, three and a half percent. Yeah. On the other hand, though, that is really just those small merchants. I mean, if we're talking about, you know, the PayPal checkout button on Macy's.com or something, they're paying a much, much lower rate. It's a great explanation. And as we watch now the crypto world try to build rival technologies that are, you know, as good and, and quick as, as this one, it's fascinating to learn about how they're doing this all over again. Lisa, we'll leave it there for now. We know you have to go get ready for the call. We appreciate it. Lisa Ellis with Moffitt Nathanson. Again, we'll hear from PayPal later tonight. Up next, check out this mystery chart. Shares are climbing more than 20% on earnings today, but it's down 76% from its 52-week high. The CEO is next on The Exchange. Tilray, that's the answer to our mystery chart. It's popping on strong fourth quarter earnings and bullish comments from CEO Erwin Simon about the company's position in cannabis. Frank Holland spoke with him about the results and is here with more for us. Pretty big move in the stock, Frank. Yeah, huge moves, Kelly. Shares of Tilray up about 24% after strong earnings and that commentary from CEO Erwin Simon that he's exploring acquisition of a U.S. consumer packaged goods company or M&A with a U.S. cannabis producer focused on potential cannabis legalization at the federal level. Going after the consumer area today that are just consumer products that can be converted to THC or CBD products and then having, you know, MSOs that have retail stores that will let us sell cannabis type adult use products or medical products is a second tier. And its first earnings after the Tilray of Free merger, a big beat on EPS, 27 cents per share compared to estimates of an 11 cent loss per share. But revenues, those missed estimates. The company's price per gram also fell 24 percent and Tilray took a 20 million dollar charge for excess inventory. Simon says that charge was caused by the COVID shutdown of retail stores in Canada that forced customers to shop online and he believes led newer customers to shop by price. Your grandmother 
is not, you know, I don't know if she's going online in order. And if she is, she's probably buying by price, not by brand. Okay. And, and secondly is there's no one to help her through what she's buying in regards to the potency, why she's buying it is for sleep, for anxiety, for pain, and why she's buying it. As she, you know, walks into a store, there's a butt tender there educating her about the product and telling her the attributes, what the brand does. Tilray earnings boosting Canadian cannabis stocks overall. A lot of retail trader excitement. Tilray trading at uh, volumes more than 500% of its 30-day average. Canopy at almost 200% of its 30-day average. Kelly, back over to you. Trying to stage that comeback. Frank, thank you very much. Frank Holland. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.